Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us. Lord, we thank you that in our darkness, in our sin, in our rebellion, you have not left us alone. You have spoken to us your word of grace and forgiveness and life and repentance through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this morning as we hear your word read to us, uh, Lord, give us uh, humility before you. Father, by your spirit, please may we hear this word and may it sink deeply into us. For each of us, Lord, today, uh, Father, as we hear your word read and proclaimed and preached, Lord, may that be um, a word that sinks into us and changes us. Uh, Lord, please give us soft hearts uh, that are ready to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. I'm reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 26. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, good day, everyone. Uh, It's good to be here and open this uh, brilliant passage uh, of God's word. I might just pray again, uh, just quickly, before we start. Father God, uh, Lord, as we open this uh, amazing passage uh, of your word to us uh, through the Apostle Paul, uh, pray that you would remove the distractions, uh, the wind and the noises, uh, help us to, to hear uh, what it is you have to say for us, these uh, wonderful truths. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I, uh, I don't watch a whole lot of TV, um, but I don't mind the odd documentary. Uh, I like documentaries, and about a month ago, uh, I think it was on the ABC, uh, I watched uh, one, it was a true story, Uh, about a captured um, American uh, in Iraq. His name was Roy Hallams. Uh, He was a contractor working in uh, Iraq in 2003 when uh, the war broke out. The company he worked for uh, moved him and his colleagues to a secure uh, compound in Baghdad uh, for safety. He was 55 years old at the time. But on November the 1st, 2004, 20 gunmen stormed the compound and Hallams and a few of his colleagues were taken hostage at gunpoint. 
Uh, most of them were soon released, uh, but Roy and another man from the Philippines were kept as prisoners and held for ransom. A month later, insurgents uh, released a video showing Hallams, uh, now with a, a long beard, um, seated with a gun pointed at his head. And the video was shown all around the world. And to cut a st long story short, um, after failed uh, ransom negotiations by his family and stalled attempts by the US government to locate him, uh, it seemed all hope was gone. He'd now been held for over 10 months and most of that time imprisoned in an underground concrete basement. He could hear the insurgents uh, talking and, and moving around in the room above him. Um, he couldn't see much uh, because he was mostly kept blindfolded and he couldn't move because they had his legs tied. So he just sat there, uh, often in darkness, wondering if anyone was looking for him or even knew he was alive. He felt utterly hopeless and helpless. And just when it seemed his situation couldn't get any worse, it did. Uh, one day there was a sudden commotion in the room above, lots of activity and raised voices. The wooden trap door opened and one of his captors brought down a portable toilet and some food. And he said his men were, were leaving, climbed back up out of the basement, closed the door and bolted it from the outside. Things got even worse. Hallam's heard the unmistakable sound of wet concrete, wet cement being poured on top of the wooden door above him and scraped and levelled out. He was being entombed alive and then all went quiet. He just sat there. There was nothing he could do, there was clearly no way out and all, any remaining hope was gone. He'd never see the light of day again and he'd never see his family again. From Roy's perspective, he was in a dark and terrible predicament, completely unable to save himself. He faced a slow and horrible death of suffocation or starvation, whichever came first. There was no hope from inside his concrete tomb. But there was hope from the outside. The US government had obtained information from a captured Iraqi fighter about a house he knew of where foreigners had previously been held, a farmhouse with a basement. And so on September the 7th, 2005, in a carefully planned rescue mission and operation, a US Army Special Forces unit located the house, entered it, found the freshly set concrete now, smashed it open, tore open the door, and there was Roy Hallams, and they rescued him. After 311 days in captivity, he was finally free. His life had been saved. Uh, it was a great story to watch. I was uh, riveted. I really enjoyed it. Really great. Well, last Sunday, we um, uh, finished a long and difficult section of Paul's letter to the Romans, which you may have been here through. Uh, it began way back in chapter uh, 1, verse 18. Paul carefully laid out a compelling case against all humanity, showing the universal sinfulness of every person without exception. And he explained how God's righteous wrath is already being revealed against this wickedness, and he told of a coming day of final judgment and wrath. The charges he presented were undeniable. And so we arrived at the close of last week's passage with the ultimate 
courtroom scene in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, which Bev read for us as a lead-in to today's text. And the reality is that all humanity, every person without exception, including me and you, stands guilty and condemned before God, the great judge, by default, really. The charges against us can't be denied. None of us have kept God's law. All of us has failed and the law simply shows us our sin. None of us will be acceptable before God on that day on the basis of anything we've done or anything we will do. We must accept the charges and we must silence our mouths in self-justification before God. Nothing more can be said in our defence because there's nothing more we can say. And if you were here last week, you may have may well have felt the weight of God's word as it came um, to the close of that difficult but very, very necessary passage. And can I say, if, if we don't feel the weight of it, or if we find ourselves denying the charges and still flapping our mouths in self-defence, we're not yet ready to hear this brilliant passage that we've come to today. This passage is good news. It's the best news ever told. But it's only good news to those who've seen the bad news, those who've accepted the charges and their rightful consequences and have nothing more to say in defence. We must see that, like Roy Hallam's, we're in a serious predicament, a far more serious, in fact, one with eternal consequences. Because we can't do anything to save ourselves. Like Roy, there's no hope from inside, from inside us, But there is hope outside us, isn't there? Because God is at work. He's been working out his great rescue plan for millennia. And Paul is now ready in this passage to reveal it fully. He hinted at it earlier. He gave us a brief glimpse of this gleaming gospel gem back in chapter 1, verse 17, where he spoke of the saving righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. But he wasn't quite ready to reveal it at that point, so he he tucked it away again. And like a jeweller preparing a, uh, to display a valuable diamond for a, a potential buyer, Paul laid out a black velvet backdrop on the countertop. The deep blackness of human sin, of our sin, and its terrible consequences. Now finally, in this passage today, he's ready to place this gem of infinite worth on display for all the world to see. And he, he does that here, and he, he does it with two words to begin with. Two brief but wonderful words. But now. But now. Of course, they don't stand alone, those two words, but boy, what relief they bring. Like the moment Roy Hallam's basement door, door was burst open, here hope's, hope bursts in. To our seemingly hopeless situation. Light floods into the darkness. With these two words and the verses that follow, Paul places the glorious sparkling gem of the gospel onto the black velvet. A great rescue has come from the outside. It had to come from the outside. And these words, but now, they they signal a a major shift in Paul's argument, a turning point uh, in the letter as a whole. And what follows are some of the most important words ever penned. One theologian claimed that this passage, verses 21 to 26, 
is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. It's a big claim, and others have made similar claims, and I think for good reason, they're jammed full of life-changing gospel truth. So let's take a look. Um, you might like to grab your sermon outline and follow along as we go. Um, the first thing to note is that uh, this great reveal, the great reveal this passage talks about, concerns the righteousness of God, uh, as Meredith uh, mentioned in the kids' talk, this word righteousness. It says, verse 21, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. And we've already seen previously how the righteousness of God can refer to his judgment and his wrath, his right and good and settled opposition to sin. Because he's a, he's a good and just God. So it's good and just that he punish sin and that he punish us. But the righteousness being revealed here is not his judging righteousness. What's now being made known is his saving righteousness. And Paul says that this saving righteousness isn't an entirely new thing. It was a planned rescue mission for the whole world. God's great rescue plan which unfolds right through the Bible. And that's why he says at the end of that verse that the law and the prophets testify to it. The law and the prophets is a, a term that the New Testament uses when talking about the, the whole Old Testament. And Paul says that, so it says that the Old Testament hinted at and pointed forward to this full revealing of God's saving righteousness. And so in the rest of uh, our passage today, we learn uh, three important things about this saving righteousness of God. Uh, the first one you'll see there is that it's a gift of grace. It's a free gift of God's grace. Have a look at verse 22. Paul says that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And again in the first half of verse 24, and all are justified freely by his grace. Can we see that this free gift of righteousness, it involves being justified now, these two words are, are really closely linked. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It's a word from the law court, the opposite of being condemned or declared guilty. To be justified is to be given a perfectly right standing before God, innocent of all charges. Can you see the, the enormity of this? On the basis of our own righteousness or rather unrighteousness, uh, we all stand condemned, rightly condemned before God, our judge, but God, in an incredible act of mercy and grace, freely gives us a perfect standing before him, a free gift of righteousness, righteousness for the unrighteous. That's great news, is it not? It's great news for sinners like us. Well, the fact that God gives, gives this perfect standing before him as a free gift to sinners has some implications, some important implications. For one thing, it means that no sin is too bad to qualify someone from receiving it. Can you see that the very nature of righteousness as a gift means that nothing you've done, no matter how bad, can disqualify you from receiving it? 
In fact, the only thing any, qualifying anyone to receive it is sin. Perhaps uh, you feel that you are too far from God's grace. You've done things in the past, maybe some really bad things. And the guilt you carry makes you sure that God could never forgive you. And perhaps as, as you've uh, read, as we've made our way through Romans, you accepted the charges against you like early on in Paul's argument. Your mouth was well and truly silenced um, before God's judgment. Maybe you think that your sin is uh, just too great, that you're beyond being saved, beyond rescue from your dark basement. And please know that no sin disqualifies you, no matter how bad it is. And realising the extent of your wickedness is the only qualification to receive this gift. It's the gift of righteousness. It's for the unrighteous, for sinners. And if that's you and you know it, that is great news for you. This gift is designed for you. It's a stunning gem and it's yours, free. On the other side of the coin, the fact that this righteousness is a free gift of grace means it can't be earned and it can't be paid for. It's not a reward for any work at all. Um, verse 21 says, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. That is, apart from any works, apart from any doing of any sort. If you're someone who uh, still thinks your works have some merit before God, the good things you do, going to church every Sunday, giving gifts to the poor, etc., Please know that the only way you can receive this gift is to come to the place of silence before God that we saw in verse 19. Holding on to your own good works as things that contribute to your right standing before God actually prevents you from receiving this gift. You can't pay for a gift and you can't offer anything in return. It'd be like a child um, refusing to receive their birthday present until they were able to pay for it. It's against the very nature of what a gift is. A gift is a gift. It can only be received as a gift. And the only way to receive it, Paul says, is by faith, which is our second point. Paul first mentions faith in connection to God's righteousness back in chapter 1, verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness, righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And here in chapter 3, he fills it out more. In the middle of verse 25, he explicitly says that this gift of salvation through Jesus' blood is to be received by faith. And back in verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, now, that is, to all who have faith. A person's right standing before God comes through faith alone. And it comes that way, and only that way, to all who believe. It's the same way equally for all. 
Because, as the verse goes on to say, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what uh, Paul demonstrated in the previous chapters, right? Uh, All equally stand condemned before God, and so all equally receive God's gift in the same way, by faith in Jesus. So what is faith? What is faith? In our culture, faith has become a very foggy and vague concept indeed. It can stand for any kind of religious belief or spirituality. Um, And having faith in yourself is a highly commendable thing in our humanistic and individualistic society. It's the ultimate religion. But faith in a biblical sense is very different to these. For starters, faith is not a work in any sense of the word. It's not something we do. Faith stands in contrast to doing. Neither is faith a commitment we make. You know, my commitment to follow Jesus, my faith decision, that's not a biblical idea at all of faith. One of the clearest illustrations of saving faith in the Bible is found in the Old Testament. On one occasion um, in the wilderness uh, where the Israelites wandered for 40 years, um, they became angry at God and they spoke out against him. And in judgment, God sent a plague of venomous snakes into the camp. You might remember reading about it. And many Israelites were bitten and died. And when Moses uh, prayed to God that the plague would end, God told him to make a big bronze a snake and put it up on a pole in the camp. Anyone who was bitten could simply look at it and they wouldn't die, they'd, they'd live. In the New Testament, the Apostle John uh, uses that very event to describe saving faith in Jesus. And that means, so faith means uh, firstly knowing the predicament that we're in, realising we have no way out on our own resources, it means giving up any idea of saving ourselves. It also means knowing the solution to our situation and then looking in confident trust to that solution which is found outside us. Uh, Roy Hallams knew his predicament. He knew it well, that there was nothing he could do to save himself. His solution had to come from the outside any faith he might have had, if we can call it, any, was a, in a salvation entirely outside himself and his resources. Now, of course, um, biblical saving faith, well, that's a, it's a spiritual matter, right? It has to do with unseen spiritual truths. But the principle remains the same. It means no longer looking at ourselves in order to be right with God at what we've done, at who we are, or what we hope to do in the future, even as a result of God's work in us. We're acceptable to God only by faith, trusting entirely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Faith trusts and rests in him alone for salvation. And that's because this free gift of righteousness received by faith is accomplished by Christ, which is our our third point. The great uh, German reformer Martin Luther, who was saved by reading Paul's letter to the Romans, claimed that these uh, few verses 
are the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. That's a claim. He had very good reasons to make that claim. And whether we agree with it or not, one thing is certain. The cross of Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, is the central event of all history. That's the inescapable assertion of the Bible. And not surprisingly, the cross of Jesus lies at the centre of this central paragraph. The theology of the cross, that is the understanding of what Christ actually accomplished on the cross, has a whole lot of different facets. And here Paul highlights two of them. But before we look at them, um, there's something we need to consider. Uh, You may have picked up on it already. It's something of a problem. It's a bit of a dilemma. If God's righteousness can be seen in his judgment and wrath on guilty sinners, his rightful judgment and wrath, how is it that his righteousness can also be seen when he freely justifies guilty sinners? How can his saving righteousness exist alongside his judging righteousness? To be, to be righteous is to be just. The two words, they mean exactly the same thing. So how can God be just and yet justify the guilty? Declare them innocent when they're not. That's unjust, right? If it happened in our law courts, there'd be outrage. God himself said in the Old Testament, I will by no means acquit the guilty. Well, these verses suggest he does just that. So is God unjust when he justifies the guilty? Well, the short answer is, uh, of course, no. He's not. But the full answer lies in the cross of Christ and in two words or concepts found in verses 24 and 25 which I've highlighted in bold text. Let's have a look at them in verse 24, from verse 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So the two concepts, as you can see, are redemption and sacrifice of atonement, as the NIV renders it. Your Bible may translate it as propitiation, which is a great word, isn't it? In the original language, there um, uh, there are two single words. The first word, redemption, comes from the world of commerce, uh, the marketplace, if you like. And it conveys the idea of paying a price to buy back something which was previously forfeited. And the word it had great meaning uh, in the Roman world where slaves could be redeemed, set free on payment of a ransom. And it also had great meaning to the Jews. Uh, they'd been redeemed from slavery in Egypt. And there's a whole lot of other examples of redemption found through the Old Testament. But it, it always involves the paying of price, a price being paid for deliverance from some sort of captivity. The New Testament teaches that the price paid for the redemption of sinners from slavery to sin and death 
is nothing other than the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son. Paul says so here in verse 25 and in places like Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. So while the precious gem of the gospel, a right standing before God, comes as a completely free gift to us, it was far from free for God, wasn't it? It cost the Father his own son, it cost the Son his own life. Can you comprehend that? What love is that for you and for me? It's the, it's the unfathomable love of a triune God because Jesus willingly laid down his life and shed his blood for you and for me. The Father gave up his own Son for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. We sing about it. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. You and I, sinful wretches, are redeemed, set free, purchased by God to be his treasure, all by the shed blood of Jesus. What a magnificent gem is this gospel. The second word Paul uses here, which translated as sacrifice of atonement, uh, has a variety of meanings. Uh, three in particular. It can denote the turning aside of wrath, the payment of a debt, and the cleansing from sin. And of course, in the Bible, often in life, they're not mutually exclusive, and we mustn't reject any one of them. But while we need to keep all three in view um, here, even, the context of this passage clearly shows that Paul is emphasising one in particular. His entire argument to this point has been to show that all humanity stands rightly condemned and under God's wrath, both now in the present and in the coming day, the final day of judgement and wrath. But by the time he gets to verse 5, there'll be a slide there, he can say of the very same people... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. What happened to God's wrath? God's holy, good and just wrath against sin. Did it just disappear? Did he just forget about it? No, that would be unjust. Have a closer look at that verse. As the verse says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And here in our text, in verse 25, Paul says, God presented, which means set forth Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. What Paul is saying is that to save us from God's own wrath, God presented his son, publicly set him forth, on the cross of Calvary. Jesus took our sin as our substitute lamb, a sacrifice of atonement foreshadowed in the Old Testament. He became sin for us and was righteously then, righteously judged and willingly bore the wrath we deserved by his death, by his blood shed. God's wrath was averted turned aside from us 
It's what this word means. We're the guilty ones. It was turned aside and it was poured out on Jesus so that we, the guilty, can be declared innocent. So that the condemned can be justified. And in case we miss the wonder of this or misunderstand what's going on here, this is entirely the action of one triune God. In the cross of Jesus, God himself, the offended party, bore his own righteous wrath for us in the person of his son Jesus, who took our sin, your sin and mine, and died in our place, in your place. What love is that? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? What a gospel. What wonderful news. No wonder Paul's not ashamed of it. And to finish this section, Paul wants us to understand that in revealing his saving righteousness in the cross of Jesus, God has shown his own perfect righteousness. In the cross, God's justice and mercy meet. He has punished sin in full. His wrath has been turned aside. Our debt is paid. We're cleansed from all of our sin. And in all of this, God is shown to be just. That's how Paul finishes the passage. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? It's an amazing passage, possibly the greatest paragraph ever written. The great reveal. What a great God we have. And it's an amazing gospel. This is the best news ever told. A free gift of righteousness received through faith in Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross. Paul has laid out this gleaming gem, sparkling gem of infinite worth. He's held it out for sinners who need to be saved. For you today, for me. And so I wonder, have you, have you received God's free gift of grace? Have you come to see and accept your own predicament, captive in your own concrete basement of sin and its consequences? Have you seen that there's no way you can save yourself? There's no way to make yourself acceptable to God and to escape his righteous and good wrath. Have you come to trust fully in Jesus Christ alone and his blood poured out for you and been delivered from sin and death and judgment, cleansed from sin, given a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ himself? There's no better gift. So receive it today by faith. Pick up the gem and take it. It's yours to enjoy forever. If you've already received this gift, perhaps years ago or days ago, don't ever put it down. We must never move past, we do never move past the incredible truths of the gospel.
It's our joy and our responsibility to, to never let it go, to turn it over in our hand and to gaze into its many gleaming facets all of our days. Understanding and growing more and more in knowledge of its depth, captivated by its beauty. That's how God changes us. That's how he sanctifies us and makes us more like Jesus. So let's never put it away. And finally, let's not keep this treasure to ourselves. The glorious gospel, this incredible good news, must be offered to all those who've never heard it, who are yet to see its beauty and know its saving power. There's millions of guilty, condemned sinners throughout our world and in our community who are no different to us. They're sitting there in their basement tombs in a terrible eternal predicament and they don't even realise it. They have no idea and they won't unless someone tells them. Unless we tell them. The bad news and the good news of the gospel is what they need to hear. Let's not be ashamed of this gospel. It is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Let me pray. Father God, you alone can rescue, you alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. We uh, rejoice in this uh, wonderful passage, your word to us. We pray that we would take this gem, if we haven't already, that we would treasure it, that we would enjoy discovering all of its wonder, captivated by its beauty, and may we share this news to all those who have never heard it, that they too may receive uh, this great great, wonderful, glorious gift in Jesus. We pray in his wonderful name. Amen.